Father, we really need you to yank us out of our delusions of self-sufficiency. Remind us today how deeply needy we are. Father, this is our problem. We quit seeing ourselves as needy. All of us in this room would like to think we are fundamentally good people whose biggest struggles in life exist outside, not inside of us. We need correction. We need to see the problem. We need to see our sin. Our petition is simple. Show us our sin. Show us our Savior. Then we shall say, it's been good to be in the house of the Lord. Granted, Lord, based not on our goodness, but on your grace. Amen. I hope you came with a spiritual appetite. I hope you came hungry. We have 96 verses to feast on today. <laughs> it's one narrative unit, so I would dishonor the story if I broke it up into smaller chunks. This is by far our largest preaching section as we're working through the book of 1 Samuel. And I decided to give it to you as a Christmas present the Sunday before Christmas. Uh, here's what I have planned. I want to walk through three chapters and then I'm going to walk out three applications. Walk through three chapters, walk out three applications. We will spend most of our time walking through three chapters and then we will end it walking out three applications. I have a lot of text and not a lot of time, so let's get after it. Things have been going wonderfully well, <laughs> wonderfully well for David. As a young man, David had secretly been anointed king. God sent Samuel to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse. Samuel looked upon Jesse's oldest sons. They were naturally more gifted physically more imposing, statistically more likely. But God chose the Catan, the youngest, the smallest, the forgotten. Forgotten by family, remembered by God. Forgotten by blood, remembered through blood. He's king-elect, but no one knows. So God begins to position him. David plays his harp, and King Saul, evil spirit, departs. He becomes indispensable. Chapter 16 tells us King Saul loved David greatly. David battles Goliath and kills him. He becomes a military hero. The good things keep flowing. Notice in verse 1. As soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. God gave David a friend. His name, Jonathan. His father, King Saul. Now let me stop here and say that there are some who have come to the text with a certain agenda. They say this is a homosexual relationship. That's absolutely ridiculous. There's no evidence of that. I think it was Tom Horner who wrote a book entitled Jonathan Loved David in which he tried to peddle this nonsense. This word love is sometimes used in a romantic way, but it's also used of God's love for us, parents' love for children, and church people's love for one another. What we have here is a deep, godly friendship. Jonathan loved David the way Jesus told us to love our neighbors, as our own souls. Men, and, and ladies, you know this, men sometimes have a hard time developing deep friendships. David was a man's man, but still had godly friendships. After David dropped Goliath, an immediate bond was forged between David and Jonathan. Saul didn't go out and fight Goliath. David's three oldest brothers didn't go out and fight Goliath, but neither did Jonathan. Jonathan didn't go out and fight Goliath. But Jonathan saw David save Israel from the hairy-chested beast. He saw David bring stability to the nation and mental stability to his father by playing the harp. You might picture Jonathan and David as the same age, like young pals growing up around the palace together. But that's not the case. 
David was born 10 years into Saul's reign. Before David was born, Jonathan was an accomplished military leader under his father. He'd already commanded two big military victories by the time of David's birth. Jonathan was old enough to be David's father, at least 20 years older. Some biblical chronologists believe he's 27 years older. That's the age gap between me and my oldest son. The bond of friendship is not an age. It's not like 20-year-olds can only be friends with 20-year-olds. 20-year-olds can have deep, meaningful friendships with 50-year-olds. Verse 3, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. And his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. You tell your friends things that you don't tell others. That's what happened with Jonathan and David. David shared with Jonathan sometime after the Goliath event that God anointed me king of Israel. I am the anointed one. When Jonathan heard this, he wasn't surprised. He saw Goliath fall. He heard the thud. He was on the sidelines that day. He knew it was of the Lord. He was likely around when God told his father Saul in chapter 14 and chapter 15, I have ripped the kingdom from you. And there when God said, you will not have a dynastic kingship, your son will not rule after you. That's why we find this very symbolic event. Jonathan is handing over things that mark him as the crown prince. He's deferring to David. He's abdicating the throne, stripping off his royal insignia and handing it to David. Basically, taking his crown off and kneeling down as he hands it over. Taking off his right to be king. David is receiving a kingdom and Jonathan is giving up a kingdom. This is incredibly humbling. It's like handing over the sword with the hilt facing him. Jonathan is saying, command me. I am willing to serve you. Jonathan made a covenant with David and formalized it with solemn gifts. Royal paraphernalia. I'm not the real heir to the throne. You are. David and Jonathan, like many men who shared battlefield adventures together, were strongly devoted to one another. Verse 5. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. That's all of them. Set him over the men of war, and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. After the Goliath adventure, Saul sent David on other campaigns. And he came home victorious every time. So Saul gave David a high-ranking position in the army. Maybe only second to the king himself. Events are falling into place perfectly. It was going better than David could have ever imagined. Until it wasn't. There came a time when things went sideways. Verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. This is a welcome home parade. They all returned from some military campaign. Women came out to meet triumphant warriors. They are dancing. This is not TikTok dancing. It's not fancy like. This is not barroom dancing, the two-step. This is not hip-hop dancing, popping and locking. This is Israeli cultural dancing. This is a dance that embodies the heart and soul of a nation. It's a choreographed dance. But they didn't just have the dance. They had the song. A song that stirred the heart of a nation. A symbolic, culturally rich song. Like the national anthem of our culture. What became their national anthem? 
Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. David, the name on everyone's lips. He's trending on Twitter. He gained instant popularity. He's an overnight celebrity. He's the giant slayer. And he's not a one-hit wonder. He's doing it battle after battle after battle. His stock is growing. This is antiphonal singing. Meaning it's going back and forth, swaying from two groups of women. It's, it's alternating between choirs. This is actually a typical Hebrew song. The second line repeats the first line, but in a little different way. It's biblical parallelism and expansion. It's usual for the second number to be beefed up. This is not meant to be a dig against Saul. It's meant to celebrate both Saul and David. But Saul's ear went beyond the beat and melody to analyze the lyrics. And something started to grow in him. It was green. Green pouring out of his heart. Green coming out of his ears. Green running from his eyes. Jealousy oozes from every pore of his body like toothpaste oozes from the tube. David faced a hairy-chested giant. Now he will face a green-eyed monster. Saul takes this whole parade as a slight. Verse 8. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Eyed, a word meaning jealous, envy, hate. But love envies not. I guess Saul never really loved David. He loved what David could do for him. And when David threatened the praise that was due his name, David became a marked man. Saul is murderously jealous. He's eaten up with it. David is a scab. He can't stop picking. He looks down from his lofty palace and sees the women dancing and the women singing and, and the parade floats. And he says, before you know it, they'll give him the kingdom. Then Saul does the unthinkable, the incomprehensible. He nurtures the jealousy. He nurtures the evil, the resentful thoughts. He lets it fester. He lets it grow. He lets it multiply. And now he's just one big pile of green ooze. Jealousy has consumed him. To nurture a sin is to bow down before that sin. The next day, like so many days before... The evil spirit from the Lord rushed upon Saul. He punches the wall. He throws pottery. He curses. He raves within his house. He's tearing the room apart. He hits his knees and screams and pulls out his hair. The servants call for David. David, like so many times before, came with the harp. He would play and the evil spirit would depart. Well, I heard there was. A sacred chord that David played to please the Lord. But Saul, you don't really care for music, do you? He stabs David with jealous eyes, green eyes. Then figures it's time to stab him with a dagger. He picks up the dabber, dagger with his green jealousy oozing through his fingers. And he, with the speed of a marksman, throws it at David. David ducks. The dagger goes in the wall behind his head. David turns and looks at the dagger and then looks at Saul. Saul stands up and begins walking toward David. David moves and keeps playing the harp. Why isn't the harp driving away the evil spirit? It's always worked before. David shuffled to the other side of the room and plays the harp with more aggression. Saul pulls the dagger from the wall and hurls it one more time at David's head. David didn't see it until the last second. He moved just in time. What is happening here? 
What is going on? Saul wants to kill me. My harp has lost its power. Everything is sideways. David could have never imagined this happening. It seemed like a bad dream, but he is awake. Events are moving ahead irreversibly now. And life can turn that quickly. You're on top of the mountain, then suddenly you're rolling down the mountain. Everything is going swingingly. And suddenly, everything is going sideways. David never saw it coming. It came out of nowhere. Saul loved him like a son, now hates him like an enemy. David is a bit disillusioned, shocked. That day in the room was the first attempt. There will be a second. A second attempt to kill David. Verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a, notice this word, thousand. This is a demotion. David was just demoted. He went from a four-star general to a commander on the front lines. He became the tip of the spear, the human shield. He lost his seat with the joint chiefs of staff. For the second attempt, Saul is trusting in the law of averages. One of these military campaigns has to kill him. But the plot fails. The Lord was with David and gave him victory after victory. Now the nation loves him more than ever. Verse 17, and Saul said to David, here is my elder daughter Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul fought, let me just pause here. The narrator is stepping back and telling us what the character is thinking. I love that. I love to hear what the character is saying, but also what the character is thinking. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against David, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. The third attempt, the Philistines will kill him for me. I won't have to lift a hand against David. Saul tells David, you can marry my daughter. You can become part of the royal family. But there are strings attached. You need to fight a certain number of battles. Well, I've been fighting battles. No, you need to fight a certain number of battles against the Philistines. Go out and kill me some Philistines to show me how you really want this. Saul is prepared to use his daughter to fulfill his own selfish ends, using her as political pawn. But Saul has no intention of planning a wedding. He's planning a funeral. Besides, wasn't David supposed to win her, the daughter, when he killed Goliath? That was the deal. Whoever kills Goliath marries the king's daughter. But Saul didn't keep his promise. Stephen Davies says there is some space in this chapter to allow for several campaigns against the Philistines, and David won them all. So get your wedding clothes out, right? No. The wedding day was set, but as the time neared, Saul reneged. He's erratic and shifty. Verse 20, and Saul's daughter Michael loved David. This is another daughter, and told Saul and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to David, that she may be a snare for him. <laughs> well, Saul thinks a lot of his second daughter. <laughs> how can I destroy this man? Um, how about let my daughter marry him? That should, that should do it. He uses the second daughter like he did the first. This is the fourth attempt on David's life. When Saul found out his daughter was head over heels for David, he rubbed his hands with anticipation. Mmm, a fourth chance. I'll use Michael as bait to get the Spirit of the Lord to depart from David as he departed from me. The word snare is used three times in the Torah, and it describes the danger of idols and idol worship. She apparently worshipped false gods. So we go from idolatry to romance. Michael loved David. The princess has fallen in love with the hero. 
This is the only time in the Hebrew Bible that we are told a woman loves a man. Of course, there were other women who loved men, but this is the only recorded one. And this clearly would happen to David if it happened to anyone. Everyone loves David. Jonathan loved David. His sister Michael loved David. The parade floats loved David. The soldiers loved David. All Israel loves David. Six times this chapter says, someone loved David. Everyone loves David. Except for Saul. He hates David. Saul commands his lackeys to go and convince David this is a good idea. You've got to marry the king's daughter. Consider the political implications. Verse 23. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law? Since I am a poor man and have no reputation. Wait. Wasn't great riches to be given to the one who killed Goliath? David killed Goliath. But he is still poor. Saul reneged on that promise as well. So David can't afford a dowry. Verse 25, then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins, that's male genitals, of the Philistines. Now, circumcision was a mark God required of his people in the Old Testament to set themselves apart from other nations. These Philistines were uncircumcised, so they still had their foreskins. Uh, a young preacher boy who used to intern here called me one day while I was driving, and he said, um, I'm going to ask my girlfriend's father if I can marry her. I responded, what do you anticipate him saying? He said, I don't know. I just hope he doesn't ask for 100 foreskins, Philistines. <laughs> Collecting foreskins is a bit weird even in this day. This practice doesn't seem to be recorded in other places. It's vicious and bloody. In a typical situation, a girl worked on a farm and produced labor for the family. And that labor would be gone if she got married, so they would replace it with a bride price. Now, this bride price is extreme. But David has no money, so this is his only option. The text doesn't record the special ops mission, but David completed the task, and he met it by the required deadline. So one day, David interrupts the king at lunch. The king is eating, and then David lays out his scalps, so to speak, slaps them on the table. One, two, three, four, 89, 90, 91, 92, 97, 98, 90, that one splash, not 100. It's a little too graphic for you. It's a little too graphic for me. Even as I said it, I'm like, stop that. But um, I just couldn't. Then, then David says, but there's more. He starts pulling out more scalps. 101, 102, 103, 198. 199, 200. He brought 200 instead of 100. David could not marry the first daughter. Saul married her off to someone else. But the second time is the charm. We're headed to the chapel. And we're going to get married. David marries Michael. And don't miss the last line of chapter 18. Saul was David's enemy continually. By the way, Saul will not stop until one of them is dead. 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and, and to all his servants that they should kill David, his son-in-law. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. This is the fifth attempt on David's life. Saul holds a cabinet meeting. There he drops all the ruses. He's laying it all out on the table. Five times in this chapter, he makes mention of killing David. Saul is unraveling. He issues a public death warrant. If chapter 18 is secretly plotting to kill David, then chapter 19 is publicly plotting to kill David. Saul's morbid and insane preoccupation with David is coming to light for the first time. It's been secretive. Now it's public. 
Jonathan is devastated. This is his dad and his best friend. But it's more than that. He knows it's the rejected king and the future king. Jonathan reveals the intel to David. He had to. It's his best friend. But it's also Yahweh's anointed king. Hide out until the morning. I'm going to go to bat for you with my father. And the next day, he did. Dad, do you want to split this thing? David is the most popular guy in the kingdom. You kill him, it's civil war. David has only made your kingdom safer and more prosperous. He's killed giants, soothed your mind with music. He's won all these military campaigns. Actually, Jonathan diplomatically points out that it was the Lord who won those victories. Besides, Dad, he's innocent. You know that. The phrase, my father, is used repeatedly in verses 2 through 5 of chapter 19 to point out that the, the ties of filial affection are deep and they're real. Jonathan doesn't appear aware of the previous attempts on David's life. Just this one. Verse 6. Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore. As the Lord lives, David shall not be put to death. (laughs) Jonathan restores momentary sanity back to his father. Makes him promise not to kill David. Jonathan called David and David comes out of the woods. He was not far away wearing camo. You couldn't see him. And verse 7 says, For a time, it was like it always used to be. For a time. Verse 9. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the harp And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he eluded Saul. So that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. This is the sixth attempt. He attempted to nail David. But nailed the wall instead. Saul just vowed before God. I will never do that. But he broke the vow. Saul was a liar. And his oaths are meaningless. David's had enough. He makes a run for it. I mean, after a while, it's like an abused wife who keeps going back to her husband. David says, he's going to keep attempting to kill me. He's frothing mad, working himself into a frenzy. David ran to his wife at home. And he tells her, your dad did it again. He tried to kill me for the sixth time. She said, he knows you're coming here. I've seen this movie before. She moves over to the window and peeks out the blinds. They're already here. See the black buggy? He's ordered the mob hit. She says in verse 11, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. Their house was on a city wall, so verse 12, Michael let David down through the window and he fled away and escaped. What a sideways picture. He used to be the hero of the nation. Now he's climbing out a window. Michael hatches a plan to buy David a little more time. Verse 13, David took an image and laid it on the bed. Um, Excuse me, Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. She got a bunch of, of pillows and blankets and arranged them in the bed to look like a body. And for the head, she used an image and put goat's hair on it. Uh, Josephus, the ancient historian, said she used a still moving goat's liver in the bed to make the messengers believe that there was a breathing person under the sheets. They eventually come to the door holding a weapon and a cannoli. Michael, we need to see David, the king. Your father wants him. Well, that's not going to happen tonight. 
He's sick. Come back in the morning. It's a masterful delay tactic. It gives David more time to cover his scent before they release the dogs. They report Michael's words to Saul, and Saul angrily replies, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. In other words, bring him bed and all. Well, the henchmen were in for a rude awakening when they pushed Michael out of the way and rushed toward the bedroom, picking up the bed, and then the, the head rolls off. They send word to the king. He comes on scene and he says in verse 17 to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, her father. He said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Michael is guilty of aiding and abetting her husband. She lies in order to save her life. David said he would kill me if I didn't cover for him. Now, there are some lingering questions with this Michael. Like, why does she have an image? The Hebrew word image is teraphim. It's a false god, a household idol. Commentators argue if it was small or human size. But what was she doing with that? She loved David. And she loved her idols. She would do anything for David but could care less about his God. Verse 18. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah, this is about three miles away, and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived in Naoth. Samuel is God's prophet, the one who anointed David as future king. When Samuel left David, everything was fitting together perfectly. Now everything is sideways. Somehow Saul's hounds caught the scent of David and treed him in Naoth. Apparently Samuel had a prophet school there and, and there, was, there were little country cottages where they were trained. You, you might think of them as Old Testament dormitories. The first group of mobsters Saul sent out approached the cottages and, and the Spirit of God rushed on them and they started ranting and raving like a madman. Saul dispatches more. The second group of mobsters came and they did the same. This happened to the third group as well. Fed up, Saul went himself. If you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. Verse 23, And Saul went there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. Children, cover your ears here. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? Somebody's naked. When the text says these men prophesied, it can mean giving a word from the Lord, which is what you often think about in prophesying, or it can mean ecstatic frenzy, which is what we have here. It's an altered state of conscience, bizarre behavior. What in the world is happening in this verse? Well, God is preventing violent action against David. God is protecting his anointed. God is validating David's claim to the throne. The narrator wants us to see that Saul is disrobing before Samuel and David. He's ripping off his kingly robe before Samuel who told him your kingdom will one day be ripped from you. He's taking off his kingly robe and crown before David who will one day wear it himself. God is showing his disapproval. You will not wear these garments in the future. You are not my chosen king anymore. Do what your son did. Put the crown on David's head. Hand the sword to David by the hilt. The text doesn't tell us how long this lasted. But it does tell us that David fled while Saul was in this embarrassing prophetic trance. 1 Samuel chapter 20 verse 1. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? 
And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Jonathan, what do I do now? What wrong have I inflicted on your father that makes him so determined to kill me? I have not incited rebellion against the throne. I have obeyed all royal commands. Jonathan responds, you've done nothing wrong. And you're not going to die, David. You're really not. My father tells me everything. He does nothing, whether big or small, without informing me. I have a hard time believing my father is capable of carrying out a mission to kill you while keeping me in the dark. Verse 3, David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. So they plan and scheme and hatch a test. David said, I'm, going to atten- I'm not going to attend the, the monthly ritual meal tomorrow. When I don't show up and my seat is empty, Saul will ask where I am. You tell him you've given me permission to go home to Bethlehem. And if he doesn't get mad, then it's safe for me to return. If he does get mad, then you will finally know the intentions of your father toward me. Right there in that moment, David and Jonathan reaffirmed and extended their covenant of friendship. God gave David a faithful friend in the midst of his hardest days. What a gift. There's nothing quite like the anchor of gospel-centered friendship when you're being pelted with waves. Jonathan swore loyalty to David at all costs. If it's you or my father, I choose you. If my father will force me to choose, I will choose the covenant. I know the promises will be fulfilled in you. I know that you're the anointed one. Jonathan asked for just one thing. Protect my house when you become king. See, typically a a new king would wipe out the offspring of the previous king to further establish his dynasty. David said, I will protect your sons and daughters, Jonathan. From verse 11 to 19, Jonathan mentions God nine times. This isn't really choosing David over his father. It's choosing God over his father. They go out to the archery range. Jonathan makes a prearranged agreement in case spies will be around later. He says, if it goes south... I will come out here with my assistant who fetches my arrows and I will overshoot my target. And then I will tell him, go further, I overshot my target. That's when you will know that my father is bent on killing you. David puts his camo on, hides out, verse 24. And David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came and the king sat down to eat food, the king sat on his seat as at other times on the seat by the wall. Let's pause here. He's paranoid of attacks from behind. So he always back to the wall. Jonathan sat opposite and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day. For he thought something has happened to David. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. Saul thought perhaps David had touched something unclean. Something disqualified him from from partaking of that religious event. Verse 27. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan responds, Hey, his family called him home for a quick visit. And I gave him permission to go. Verse 30, then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. We have an equivalent in our day. You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame? 
Saul launches the most abusive, rageful, foul-mouthed tirade you've ever heard. He loses his temper and goes nuts. It's an uncontrolled outburst. Perhaps Jonathan, for the first time ever, saw the flashing anger of Saul. You're choosing that piece of dung over me? Well, in actual fact, it wasn't so much that Jonathan had chosen David as that God had chosen David. It first went sideways for David. Now it goes sideways for Jonathan. But Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan, verse 33, to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. See, Jonathan had been willing to give his father the benefit of the doubt, to believe the best. But this is the last straw. First, David's chair is empty. Now, Jonathan's chair is empty. The next day, Jonathan goes out to the archery range and sends his assistant out to retrieve the arrows. He shoots three arrows well beyond his, his target. And he yells, it's beyond you. Run further. The boy assistant, of course, knew nothing of what was going on. Only Jonathan and David knew. Now, we've walked through three chapters. Now let's walk out three applications. We've walked through three chapters. Now let's walk out three applications. Application number one. When things go sideways, remember... It's okay to cry. Verse 40. And Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap, fell on his face to the ground, and bowed down three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another. David, I love this phrase, David weeping the most. Why is David weeping? Because things went sideways. Eastern people were not afraid to weep and to embrace and kiss each other. This is a holy kiss that you find in the New Testament. This is not, I will be gone for 11 month deployment cry. This is, I will likely never see you again cry. The pent up emotion finds relief first in tears and then in remembrance of their mutual commitment before the Lord. It's a, it's a tearful goodbye before David sneaks off into the woods. Here's my point. When things go sideways, remember it's okay to cry. When you discover a spouse lie to you, when your job is being threatened, when you're being misrepresented like David, people are lying about your name, when you, like David, are being pushed out, it's okay to cry. This is a human emotion that spans the test of time. You live in a broken world, and it will at times break you. You hurt, you ache, and you want it to stop. Church, tornadoes spin. Tragedy strikes. The unthinkable happens. Your life gets turned sideways. David is at the center of God's will, but weeping the most. Who told you being in God's will meant no tears? Who told you being in God's will meant things are never sideways? You've been told wrong. When things go sideways, remember, it's okay to cry. Application number two, when things go sideways, remember, Christ calls for supreme devotion. See, it didn't just go sideways for David. It went sideways for Jonathan, too. Remember what Jesus said in the New Testament? You must hate father and mother if you will follow me. Jonathan is a great picture of New Testament conversion. When forced to choose between his earthly father and his heavenly father, he chose correctly. 
God does not promise us family harmony. Through many afflictions we will enter the kingdom of God. Christ calls for supreme devotion. More devotion to Christ than your daughter. More devotion to Christ than your father. More devotion to Christ than your sister. More devotion to Christ than your grandchildren. Jesus said, do not think that I have come to bring peace, but realize that I have come to bring a sword. And I'm, I'm going to set husbands against wives, parents against children, and siblings against one another. To side with Jesus is at times to side against family. It may be mother or father, spouse or children, friends or co-workers. There will come a time when you will have to say with Jonathan, if you make me choose, I will choose God. Every time, without end, now and forever, I always choose God. Don't allow any of these relationships to make you give in to small compromises. If you're here and you're a non-Christian, we've talked, some of you are. If you're here and you're a non-Christian, this is the devotion that Jesus demands. I will not sugarcoat it. Come to Christ and be prepared to leave family if necessary. Application number three. When things go sideways, remember God is sovereign, but we still act. When things go sideways, remember God is sovereign, but we still act. There are many times in today's text where David is very close to being murdered. He said, there is a step between me and death. But notice that the narrator is more interested in theological causes than historical details. He continually tells us that the Lord sent the evil spirit upon Saul. So the Lord is sovereign over David's sideways situation. I mean, just look at who God used to protect David. A faithful man, Jonathan, and an idolatrous woman, Michael. That's sovereign. He used truth and lies to protect his anointed. You need to always remember that God is sovereign over whatever is causing you tears. Now, I want to let that rest on you before, before I add to it. God is sovereign over whatever is causing your tears. Now let me add to it. God is sovereign, but we still act. David flees. David strategizes. David ducks. David plans. Charles Spurgeon said, Self-preservation is a law of nature which we are bound to obey. No man should needlessly expose himself to sudden death. In other words, David wasn't saying, God is sovereign, so I'm not going to duck when Saul throws the dagger at me. He wasn't saying, I I'm not going to run. God is sovereign. If you want to kill me, kill me. God is sovereign, and we protect ourselves. God is sovereign, and we duck. God is sovereign, and we strategize. And that's three chapters and... Three applications, so let me land this plane. I want to end it like I began it. Like I began it. That was in North Carolina coming out in me, excuse me. Comes out every once in a while. I actually do have a, a seminary degree, a doctoral degree. You never know um, because it's not who I am down at, at my heart. Let me end this. See, I didn't have that in my notes. That's why. You think, and the other thing about the splashing, that wasn't in my note either. So when I don't say what's in my notes, it's bad. Let me end this like I began it. Things had been going wonderfully well, wonderfully well for Jesus. As a young man, he amazed scholars with his teaching in the temple. He developed quite a diverse following. Rich, poor, men, women, children, adults, insiders and outsiders. He fed 5,000 on one occasion, 4,000 on another, all with the kids lunchable. 
He healed the sick and raised the dead. He cast out demons and calmed storms. He developed quite a following. Parade floats welcomed him. Women were singing. He was trending. Israel was abuzz with this hero. Everything is going swimmingly. And suddenly, everything goes sideways. Jesus is accused of blasphemy. He's accused of drunkenness. He's lied about. He's ran out of town. He's threatened. He's betrayed, not by his Saul, but by his Jonathan, one of his friends. He, he was declared guilty in a farce trial. He was beaten with rods, spit upon. He's made fun of. He's ordered to die like a criminal hanging on a cross. He's stabbed with a dagger in his side. He's already dead. It all went sideways very quickly. But unlike David, Jesus saw it coming. It didn't shock him. He predicted it. Jesus didn't leave heaven and come to Bethlehem to experience things going perfectly. He came to experience the sideways. He's not unfamiliar with the sideways. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, completing the payment needed to rescue a fallen people from their sins. He stayed on earth 40 days before ascending to heaven. And he told his disciples, down there, it will go sideways. But I'm coming again to set everything right. Let's stand and pray together. Jesus, this is a time when our culture, which is really small, I know, compared to the world, but Lord, this is a time when, when our culture celebrates your first coming. But we do not want to neglect to look forward to your second coming when you come to make all things right. Father, you have ministered to us today through your word. And proven once again that you will sustain your people through your preached word. We give you glory and honor for this. Now, Father, as we sing, would you, clothed, would you clothe our words in the righteousness of Christ that it would be acceptable to you? Church, let's sing. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.